Before we get into today's chat, we'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners and custodians of the land on which we record this podcast today, the peoples of the Kulin Nation. As always, we pay our respects to their elders past and present. What I don't like is when people who have never met me off the street decide that it's okay to just come up and ask about how I lost my vision and Mm. it's just not in context at all. Mm. Uh, Well, it's true. If someone walked up to me on the street and asked me something about my physical appearance, (laughs) I'd be like, it's none of your business. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to Talking in Common, a podcast of all things lifestyle, family, relationships, well-being, kids and culture. This is not a how-to, but an insight into the lives of ourselves and others and how we all manage to get by. Hosted by myself, Kate Gadinsky, and my co-host, Sophie Panton. Take a listen and let's find out what we all have in common. We'd like to say a big thank you to today's episode sponsor, Nutura Organic, the makers of Australian-made certified organic nutrition for early childhood, made only from Australian milk. Hi, doll. We're back again. Hi. <laughs> you look very well rested today for someone with a... Oh, that's overly kind of you. Thank you. How many weeks is Ren now? Do I actually or are you being sarcastic? I think it's the lighting. <laughs> like you kind of do. No, you actually do. You do. You do. Your eyes aren't glassy and watery today. They looked a bit glassy yeah. when I saw you the other day. Oh, I was just telling you before that this morning when I washed my hair, I got shampoo in my eye and my re- my eye went all bloodshot. <laughs> and I was like, I don't need another reason to look tired and sore-eyed. Oh, my goodness. But the for joys. anyone tuning in that doesn't know, it's because I'm five weeks in with a little babe. So I'm, I'm getting a little less than what sleep is required at the moment. But I had not a bad night last night, so I'll take the compliment, my darling. And how else are you feeling? Are you feeling good? Feeling pretty good, yeah. Just, you know, riding the waves one day at a time at the yep. moment, I'll say, one day at a time. I think that's a good way to look at it. Yeah, settling into our new family of four, though, which is so cool. Aiden and I, my partner Aiden and I were having a little chat the other night how, and I think you and I have spoken about this before, like, you know, once you do have another child in the mix, like, it just feels so right. You just sort of can't picture the family how it was previously without them. And we were sort of saying like with myself, my partner and my daughter, it felt like us as a couple with a baby, but mm. now we feel like a sort of a complete family. Yeah. Aww, so, so settling nice. into all that. Mm. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. What's happening? Uh, well, did I tell you I went to the football yesterday? <laughs> such a lol for anyone that doesn't know Kate that well. She's not the hugest footy fan. I actually had such a good time and it was, well, it was my husband's team, Mackie's team, and yeah. both of my girls go for Carlton because they have to because it's their dad's team and yeah. I go for St Kilda. Yeah, so they're traders on you, your girls. He even conned me into wearing a Carlton jumper. Oh, you're a serious trader. Yeah, and he like... No, but then I we were I was like feeling all guilty and conflicted about it. I was like, yeah. "Gonna go for St Kilda." Yeah, like what would my own father think? Yes, I was gonna say. And I was like, "No, you know what? Today I'm just taking one for the team." And as soon Good as I put you. that jumper on, everyone was excited. Everyone was pumped, and you know, of course, Mackie was trying all the. Oh my god, you look so hot in that. Ooh, that's <laughs> like smart. Oh, you look amazing, and I'm just like, okay, okay, I know what you're doing. I will wear it. Oh, I love it. 
So we went to the footy and can I tell you, we caught the train there. We had the full experience. Yeah. The girls were so happy. Yeah, it would have been fun. It's actually quite fun to go to, like there's such a vibe. You know, with the crowd and everything, it's... Always helps when the team wins, which Carlton did. Yeah, nice. Actually uh, spotted our mate Fev there. Oh, you did? <laughs> oh, Fev, shout out. Yeah, he's an old Carlton player, isn't he? I wonder if any of my brothers were there. They're all Carlton supporters, probably. But anyway, enough about me and my escapades at the football. <laughs> what do we have in common this week? Probably that, like little family outings of four. You know, here I am talking about... My little family of four and you guys are a little family of four and that sounds so fun. It sounds like a little family date day. It was. It was. Mm. It, oh, and then we actually came home and we went out for dinner. So it was a really nice way to spend a Sunday. I mean, you know, with a little newborn at home, I'm not doing much, but the times that we do all have together, we've been actually like, you know, really taking the opportunity, seizing the moment of when we do feel rested and, you know, they're both not crying and having a tantrum to go on little adventures together. And we've done some like drives into the country and, you know, done some nice sort of winter pub lunches and easy things that are doable and achievable, like, yeah, on a weekend or a Sunday or something, which has been so nice. Um, but, you know, it's also important to go out with your partner and nurture your relationship and have a nice time. Aiden and I actually went out for dinner last night and had a little date night. Actually, it was a, actually we went without Ren. We went without baby oh. Ren. We were only gone out for two hours. Oh, my God. Did you feel like, were you like wet? Did you feel weird? Oh, I was fucked. I hated it. <laughs> yeah, you were just like, oh, my boobs. Oh, my, my boobs are I cried. Um, tingling. Oh, where is he? Oh, is he okay? I cried. Oh, my God, I cried at dinner. But it, but it was still really nice to go like and do it. Like happy cried or? Um, just emotional crying. <laughs> like I didn't I know whether I was. I I just was like, oh, yeah, just emotional, you know. I don't know. But, yeah, it's so nice to go out for date nights too, right? Have time without the kids. Absolutely. I just love doing that and I think it's so important for your relationship so nice for you to be able to sit down connect with each other uninterrupted because yeah, even yeah, when yeah. you're at home and you can have date nights at home but it's still not quite the same because you're distracted with other things yeah it's not the same connection in saying that though I'm so freaking tired at the moment my ideal date night is like double dropping two melatonins and having a <laughs> stiff cup of chamomile told you they were the best <laughs> yeah so anyway um speaking of you know sleepless nights and and tired and babies our guest that we're going to chat to today has a gorgeous little babe and um, we should get into her episode because she's awesome and I think you guys will really enjoy it. So let's intro her. So today's guest is Naz Campanella and she is a journalist and newsreader and is currently the ABC's National Disability Affairs reporter. You may even recognise her voice from Triple J's Radio News, which she was the newsreader for seven years. She's been really outspoken about her life and experiences as a blind woman who lost her sight when she was just six months old, as well as having a neurological condition affecting her sensitivity, which means she can't actually even read Braille. She recently became a mother and we're so interested to hear how this has all been going for her and all of her experiences with it so far. She's a total powerhouse. She's a great advocate for people with disability. She oozes confidence with a whole lot of honesty and we can't wait to chat to her. So here she is. 
Naz, a big warm welcome. Thank you for making the time to chat with us today. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me. And just for people who are kind of getting to this podcast, I just want to preface this by saying I'm on a phone. I'm <laughs> squatting in the in the living room away from a sleeping baby. And just so I'm caught between a, a bouncer and a toy <laughs> box full of gorgeous toys and trying to enjoy a bit of some shine at the moment. So. And not wake the baby. Yes. Yeah, so. We'll use our quiet voices. but we totally get it I've just palmed off my little five-week-old over to my partner to burp and shush (laughs) with the doors closed amazing now Naz there's so much we want to chat to you about and learn about you you've got a successful career going on you're a new mum now as well and you've also been navigating your life vision impaired or blind can I just ask you straight up how do you describe do you call yourself vision impaired or blind I kind of go between the two, but essentially I'm, I'm just blind. I always say that I'm a woman who is blind or blind woman and vision impaired kind of covers the whole gamut. So happy with either two of those. Yeah. And do you prefer people just to ask you questions like that? <laughs> I do. I mean, what I don't like is when people who have never met me off the street decide that it's okay to just come up and ask about how I lost my vision and mm. it's just not in context at all. Mm. Whereas, you know, we're on a podcast here, we're clearly talking about me and my life, that's in context. Or, you know, a friend, for example, asked me on the weekend, prefacing the whole thing by, I hope it's okay to ask this and if it's not, just tell me to go away. Mm. But, you know, she was asking me questions about how I kind of work through things with Lockie and motherhood generally with my vision and pain and a neurological condition. And that sort of context is totally fine. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, it's true. If someone walked up to me on the street and asked me something about my physical appearance, I'd be like, it's none of your business. <laughs> yeah, go away. Exactly <laughs> but, <right>. yeah, <laughs> absolutely. If there's anything that we touch on today that you are not comfortable with, I'll just say so. Thank you. So you have been navigating your life blind. And then, as you mentioned, with another neurological condition that you discovered in your childhood. But, you know, rather than me telling this part of your story, can you tell us about it? So my neurological condition is called Charcot-Marie-Tooth. And it's a type of degenerative genetic condition which impacts balance, sensitivity and muscle tone. So Mm. I guess the biggest ways it manifests for me is the inability to feel a lot. So for example, I can't read Braille because I've got a lack of sensitivity in my fingertips and balance is very badly impacted. And so, so yeah, that's kind of, kind of where it's at with that. Mm. And you were a baby, like about six months old when, was it your parents that discovered you were blind? Yeah. So I was six months old when blood vessels burst in the back of my eyes and they essentially detached the retinas. And I went through a whole bunch of surgeries to try and restore sight for many, many years. And, you know, it's been a long time where I haven't had anything now. And so that's just where it's at. So Naz, we always like to ask our guests what they wanted to be growing up. What did you aspire to be as a younger person? I actually did aspire to be a journalist, to be honest. I I did aspire to be doing something in radio, something in media. I always used to kind of sit and and sort of a cassette player where I used to record my voice and then pop songs on and I used to make people sit and listen to me (laughs) present this fake radio program. And so it's funny that I've ended up there because I really did that. That's what I used to do even at playtime as a kid. Awesome. Yeah, right. Well, congratulations on you know Thank you. <laughs> becoming what you aspired to. That's amazing. 
I'd love you to tell us a bit about the job that you had with Triple J as a newsreader and also the technology that you used to do this job because it's so incredible. It would have been so challenging, but you were so bloody good at it. So I started firstly at the ABC in about 2011. I was a cadet journalist and so you kind of learn the ropes over a 12-month period from all the senior journalists and it's a paid, I guess, traineeship if you like. It's the best way to describe it. Then we all go off to a regional or remote part of Australia. I was posted to Bega on the New South Wales far south coast, a beautiful area with beaches on one side, rolling hills on the other and it was just an amazing experience. And then came back to Sydney for the job at Triple J and essentially that was as a newsreader and sort of reporter. Mm. So I learnt newsreading and the technique I used is incredibly unique. It was developed by a bunch of fantastic tech guys at the ABC and obviously I was there kind of testing and trialling it out until we kind of had it to a, a good enough stage where we could hit the airwaves. Yeah. And essentially it's it's four streams coming into my headphones. So I've got a laptop set up in the studio and it's got screen reading software on it. And I manoeuvre through the stories using different keystrokes. I don't use a mouse. Um, right. The speech program actually reads out everything on the screen out aloud. It's this sort of robotic kind of Americanized voice. And so that was coming through the headphones telling me the stories and I was listening and repeating what I was hearing. So fascinating, that technology. That's just an incredible skill. I can barely like talk on the phone and think about something at the same time. Little I really read out the news. Yeah, I bet. It is really tricky. So that was the first audio stream. And then the second was myself coming through the microphone. Then there was the little audio snippets that I needed to play during the bulletin. And then finally there was a clock telling me when to start and finish the bulletins because they were very, very carefully timed. So it was all of that happening at once. It was quite intense but a really awesome sort of setup. And apart from listening to all of that and reading news live to air, I was also panelling the desk, so fading up and down and pressing the microphones on and off and, and working the desk at the same time. That is a lot of multitasking going on. <laughs> <laughs> it certainly was, yeah. You yeah. definitely make mm-hmm. a good mum. Do you use a similar technology to read emails and use your phone and stuff like that just in an everyday, like day-to-day sense as well? So obviously you lose three of those audio streams. I don't need to hear myself through a microphone or any of that to to do any of that other day-to-day stuff. But essentially that screen reading software, that little robotic voice just tells me everything on the screen. And I navigate the computer using different combinations of keys or keystrokes rather than the mouse because that's obviously very visual. So it reads out my emails. I can kind of look at different websites using the arrows on the keyboard and it will read it all out. And I have, often have headphones in just so that people can't hear what's going on on my computer or I'm not interrupting other people. To be fair, though, it would be very unlikely for people to understand what it says. I think you really have to get used to it in order yeah. to really understand what it's saying. Yeah, right. So, Naz, you played a blind pregnant woman on Offspring a few years back and have said that this particular role made you feel a little conflicted. First off, how did the role come about? And can you also tell us what made you feel conflicted about this role and the storyline? Yeah, so I'm not an actress at all, <laughs> never done anything like it, not interested. But a friend was working for a casting agent and they needed someone vision impaired and I kind of went along to the audition as a bit of a joke and a bit of a favour to this friend and ended up funnily just getting the role and going off and having a, a really, you know, interesting and kind of 
strange experience, but, you know, awesome because I got to hang out with Asha Ketty, who I was a very big fan of. <laughs> it wasn't until I was sort of heading home, I actually just burst into tears and because the scene was this blind woman having a baby and in the scene at the end they sort of say to the mum that baby she's had is not blind and she's all elated and excited and everything. And I sort of thought one day that could actually be me and I'd never thought of that before and I guess I was sort of on one hand thinking I guess I would be happy if they weren't but also why couldn't the storyline be that the baby was because it doesn't matter like the mum is blind they couldn't have a better person to kind of help them navigate through this world which is completely and utterly inaccessible and and not very inclusive at times so Mm. it sort of left me feeling quite conflicted and confused about my feelings really do you feel like that experience kind of like prepared you for the real life experience I think so I think I talked a lot about it with my husband then and we discussed all the different kind of you know things that might come up and even things like discrimination and judgment from other people and whether we wanted kids and all that that kind of thing. And I think it was a really good experience looking back now because it did make us talk about some of those hard, tricky issues and we really worked through them quite early on and realised that it didn't matter to us. So I guess that was the important thing that we worked that out very quickly. And have you experienced a lot of discrimination in your life, Naz? I've experienced lots of discrimination. In fact, I still do. When it came to getting a job, it was really difficult. People didn't want to give me any work in media because they just couldn't see beyond the disability. It was just, this is going to be a problem and had very low expectations about what I could and couldn't do. And I guess it was their own internal and unconscious, you know, conscious and unconscious bias of of what people with disability could do in terms of work and contributions. But it's happened regularly and all the time, you know, even tiny little things like even a month ago, my husband and I were in a cafe and someone asked what I wanted to order when I was sitting right there. Or we'd turn up to a medical appointment and I was, again, standing right there next to him and the baby and someone said, oh, what's her name and what's her date of birth? Mm. And it's like, well, you could ask me. So things happen like that all the time. Mm. It's um, funny how people are awkward about that sort of stuff. Like, it's why I just asked you straight up, you know, how do you describe yourself and what are you comfortable with? Like the way that people like sort of beat around the bush about things and make things awkward and make people feel completely uncomfortable and invalidated is just... two sides to the coin here. I think, firstly, not many people have worked or lived with or met people with disability. Mm-hmm. And I think on one side of the coin, you've got people not wanting to do anything because they're so scared of getting it wrong. Yeah. And the other side, people doing it, but just going about it in a completely wrong way because they're just, you know, I hate to say it, but they're completely and utterly ignorant. Yes. And I think it's why, although it really frustrates me, particularly now that I'm in a public role and my story is definitely out there and if people see me walk in with a baby, a husband, uh, I look quite capable, you shouldn't assume those sorts of things. So I hate to think of if they're saying those things to me, what on earth are they saying to people they would deem not capable? And It frightens me to think what they say to other people who they don't know a thing or two about already. Mm. I always use it as an opportunity to educate, I think, because if I don't, the next time someone blind or, you know, in a wheelchair, rolls in, walks in, they're going to get that same treatment and they shouldn't. Well, that's right. You know, good on you for just speaking about it. 
So fast forward a few years from your offspring experience and you become pregnant yourself. And I remember an article that you did with the ABC about blind mothers and how they navigated motherhood through like specifically designed products and things like that. And I found it really interesting and it really made me think about how different the experience would be for you. How did you prepare yourself when you were pregnant? And also how did you prepare for the baby? So even before I got pregnant, I was preparing through sessions with an exercise physiologist to make sure that my body was physically ready to carry a pregnancy. So one of the major things with my neurological condition, as I mentioned, is poor balance. And Mm. so obviously as my body changed, got bigger, I got heavier, I was going to be even more prone to falls and, and tripping and things like that. So I needed to make sure that I was mobile, stable, and also that my muscles were ready to carry baby physically yep. in my arms, you know, get down and, and up off the couch while holding baby um, without having to sort of reach for support, all those things. So I worked with an EP. I worked with an occupational therapist just to work out, you know, how to set up the home and and how to do different things, the kinds of equipment to buy. The reality is there's nothing that's really specifically designed. All the parents that I've spoken to with various disabilities, not just my own, they had very similar experiences of A, discrimination, B, judgment from people they didn't even know, and sometimes people they did know. And thirdly, that nothing in terms of equipment or supports and services, there was next to nothing out there. And any equipment they did by, they often had to adapt it themselves to suit their individual needs. I kind of knew I was starting from a low base to begin with. And then I was really fortunate to connect with, I was in a high-risk pregnancy program at my major hospital. And I had a beautiful midwife who saw me through the entire pregnancy and even a bit of post stuff. You know, she hooked me up with a neurophysio, consultants, you know, for, for lactation, I had face-to-face lessons with the parent education team at the hospital to learn how to bath baby, wrap, change, all of those different things. She just used her networks because, again, there was no step-by-step manual or instruction guide for how to support a person with disability who was pregnant and she'd never done it before. So she really just drew on her networks. And it essentially meant that I got a service that was completely and utterly specific to my needs. So in a sense, the fact there was nothing there and the fact I had really open-minded staff worked in my favour because the red carpet was sort of rolled out and we worked together because they knew me free, I knew my disabilities and together we kind of just worked it out. It's great. It was almost tailored for you. Yeah, it really was, which is what all care plans, no matter what you're going into hospital for, should look like, but they don't. And it just happened almost because there was nothing available. So we had really direct and and ongoing communication at every stage with a team of midwives, including my own at the helm. And we just kind of worked it out. You know, the plan changed every now and again when it needed to. And yeah, it worked beautifully. So let's delve right into the mum chat. How have you found the first few months? It's been the most beautiful challenge ever, really. (laughs) I think, you know, those, those first two weeks, are pretty full on. And I think the emotions that you go through are really underestimated. Not a lot of people talk about them. I had to have a cesarean. It was an emergency cesarean and it took a long time for my balance to return. And so I was feeling like, you know, just being stuck in bed, not being able to sort of hold the baby or get up and do what I wanted to do straight away was a bit hard. And then it took a long time for, you know, the the milk to come in and then the breastfeeding. (laughs) I was struggling with that. 
obviously completely sleep deprived. So all of those emotions, I think, were just, you know, swirling around and I was just feeling absolutely happy, but just cried happy tears like for two weeks, just every day for no reason at all, just holding Mm. him, giving him a cuddle and just feeling like really lucky to, to have him and all those sorts of things. And I was feeling at the time, like breastfeeding was a really big struggle for me. It just didn't work. I pursued it for sort of almost three months. But during those first two weeks, I was just feeling so crappy because I thought, why isn't this happening naturally? Like breastfeeding is just supposed to be all by feel and it's supposed to just be natural. And everyone kept telling me, it'll just happen. It'll just happen. And it wasn't. And then one night I sort of just was feeding him a bottle that I'd expressed breast milk into. And I just was sitting here going, you know what, if this doesn't work, it doesn't matter because he's putting on weight, he's happy, he's thriving. And I'm completely in love with him. Like I'm just, I've got the hang of this, you know, and if the breastfeeding doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. Fast forward, you know, two and a half months when I decided to stop pumping every three hours because breastfeeding still wasn't working. I made the really difficult decision to stop and it was devastating and sad and I was crying the whole time about it, but I haven't looked back and it's been, you know, fine ever since. But apart from that, it's just been learning new things every day and he's taught me so much about just being patient and in the moment and present like I could just get lost in playing on the floor and not realize that a whole hour has gone by seriously best time wasters ever and and I'm totally okay with that like I am normally an incredibly high octane, (laughs) highly strong, go, go, go type person. But I think just being with him and just knowing that I have given myself permission to have this time is just, it's been beautiful. So how do you navigate all the baby things like feeding, playtime, sleeping, (laughs) (laughs) changes, everything basically? Because I'll start with the nappy changes. Yes. 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 Hectic when you can see. Yeah, look, I mean, it's pretty easy to describe it. It can be messy and it's tactile and it just is what it is. There's no two ways about it. But I find that he's incredibly patient with me and I have no idea whether he's just realised that, I mean, he still wriggles around, but he's a bit more calm for me than he seems to be for everyone else. I wonder if he's realised, like, if if I don't just cool it a bit, you know, I won't get cleaned (laughs) properly or I won't. (laughs) This will never get done. (laughs) Yeah, so... And just feeling like even dressing him, I sort of thought, oh my gosh, how, how do I do this? Like, how do I get little fragile arms and legs into onesies and things? Yeah. But zippy suits have been a godsend. We use magnetic suits, so they're kind of like press studs, but you have magnets to clip things together. I hate press studs. I hate oh. little buttons that you put through loops and holes. They should be banned. No parent should be using them. Press studs are a whole nother thing. Yeah, well, I still have press studs because, you know, beautiful people have bought gorgeous outfits and I use them, but they're a bit of a struggle. So those things, I've got textured mats for playtime so I can hear where he is. We've got lots of toys that jingle jangle and make beautiful noises so that I can sort of put them around him and hear where he's moving and what he's doing with them, particularly now that he's actually grabbing things and moving around. That's become really important. Mm. I've got a little rocker that I can strap him in as well. If I need to just walk away or go to the bathroom or grab something to eat. We spend a lot of time on the floor as well. Just, you know, like I gave him a little sponge bath this morning because we didn't have time to give him a bath last night. So I thought, oh, I'll just get a nice bowl of warm water. I'll just put him on the floor and we'll just do it with a bunch of towels. And it was just me on my own. It was lovely. Mm. And I've got a change table with really high sides so that it's a little less difficult for him to roll off. Those are some of the main things, really. 
Honestly, it sounds the same as most mothers experience with their first (laughs) child. Like everyone's just sort of making it up as they go along. They're finding things that work. They're finding things that, you know, works for the baby, works for the mother, works for the family. Like when it's your first child, like you were talking about before, there's no sort of guides or handbooks on mothers with disability, but like there's not really, I mean, there is, we talk about this all the time. There's like a million handbooks and books on how to raise babies, but when you're doing it and you're in the thick of it, you've got to figure it out yourself. You could read all the books in the world that you want, but it's not until you have a baby and you realise kind of what baby they are and what they like and what they don't and how to navigate it yourself that you know what you're doing. And it also comes with time. So, you know, I would never have filed his nails or, Mm. you know, done certain things with him in those first few weeks. I filed them this morning because they were just getting gross and he started to scratch me. So, (laughs) Kind of they're so sharp when they're little. Yeah. Yeah, They're like little fangs. Yeah. And you also just realise that they're not as fragile as they look. You know, you still need to be very careful with them, obviously. But, you know, sometimes if he's wriggling around, I'll just grab his legs and sort of, you know, put him in place and pop jeans on him or whatever. Also things like knowing for me how he's sleeping and obviously not wanting to wake him up. You know, I've just worked out little techniques. For example, when he is sleeping in his bassinet, I obviously want to reach in and check that, you know, he's facing the right way and is he okay and all those sorts of things, but also not wanting to wake him up. So just learning how to do that. And obviously it's trial and error. You know, the first time I did it, I probably did wake him up. I can't remember, but you realize, you know, what's going to work for you. So I would stick my hand in the side of the bassinet, run it along the side of, I'll know if his face is to one side or if he needs to be pulled down a little bit, if he's crept up. Even, um, I started swaddling him in in wraps when we first came home because, you know, that's what I learned to do and that's what I thought everyone did. I was terrible at it. He just, I just wasn't good. I never did him tight enough. He got his hands out all the time. And so we started using the Love to Dream or the swaddle suits and they've been amazing. I just pop him in. And also it's been really good for me to know whether he's still sleeping on his back. So there's a zip at the front. So I will actually just quickly gently run my hand from the bottom of where I think his chest is going to be. And if I can feel the zip facing up, then I know that he's not flipped over or anything and he's totally fine. So it's actually been a really good way to know where he is in space in the bassinet as well. Mm. How old is he now, Naz? He's five and a half months. So we just started solids this week, which is a new ball game. How's he going? Really good. We've done some rice cereal, I think it's called, or porridge, and Mm -hmm. he's had it three days in a row. So I've been doing it with someone just to make sure that, you know, he's not choking and, and also just to kind of show me how it's all done and everything. Because every new little stage I'm going to have to have someone with me, well, I don't have to, but I'm choosing to have someone with me at first just to kind of make sure he's okay, make sure I'm okay and navigate it kind of together and teach me what I need to do and watch me do it a couple of times before I decide I can be let loose on my own. And so the first day he looked very confused, I was told, and he just kind of held it in his mouth, didn't eat very much. (gasps) Then the last two days he's just gulped it down. And, of course, he's got lots on a bib and it's covering his face completely and I can feel all the sticky wetness. But um, he's off and racing. He loves it. So I'm really keen to maybe pop some apple or pureed something in it next week and see how we go. 
All right, Kate, time for an ad break. Let's do it, babe. (laughs) I love the philosophy of the Nutura brand. It's very much what we believe in here at Talking in Common. It takes a village to raise a child. And we all know that, right? Seriously takes a big village. And Nutura's village is a collection of parenting, health, nutritional and agricultural experts who aspire to support parents and create innovative, wholesome, organic nutrition for our next generation. Made only from Australian milk using a fresh milk formulation, meaning it dries its high-quality milk only once, not twice. This means more of the goodness is locked in, including naturally occurring bioactive proteins. With zinc, iron and plenty of vitamin C, Nutura Organic supports little immune systems to be the happiest they can be. Nutura Organic, the guaranteed goodness of fresh milk in every tin. Now let's get back into our chat with Naz. So what would you say has been the most challenging thing so far and what have you found to be particularly challenging being blind? Two things, the breastfeeding and people's Mm. attitudes. So I always knew people's attitudes were going to be a thing. They are my entire life. And for most people with disability, you know, there are 4.4 million Australians with disability in this country. And we will experience discrimination on a very regular basis. So totally used to it, totally expected it was going to happen. Shouldn't, but I just knew it would. And I have had people be very shocked that, you know, I'm a mum or they'll see me sitting with my husband and holding the baby in a cafe, but it's not until I get up and have my cane as well where they gasp and look very surprised and things like that. I've also had people ask me stupid things like, who stays home? with Lockie and I while my husband's at work, like we need supervision. Or someone actually asked my husband, how did he feel being mum and dad? Oh, my gosh. Seriously? Like just (laughs) shit people. Yeah, so that was a really horrible one. How does it make you feel, Naz? Because as a mum myself, you feel so protective and so proud as a mother. Like what does it make you feel when people make comments and judgments like that? I'm not surprised because unfortunately I kind of expected a little bit of it, but it just makes me angry because I feel like we've come so far in society and then, you know, a comment like that happens and you kind of go, oh, yep, back to where we started. And also that because I, we were so early on in the piece, the hormones were absolutely raging and I had been up every night. I'd been up every two hours the night before that comment was made and Tom slept so soundly and I feel like saying, You've got no idea, no idea. what's going yeah. on in our house. Like, and to be honest, Tom gets more angry at people than I do, I think, because I am more used to them. Yeah. He is obviously not ever since, you know, he's, he's been with me for 10 years. But before that, I guess he's pretty immune to what sorts of discrimination and judgment and terrible things people with disability endured. But mm. it still makes him really angry. And he's very quick to jump to my defense, which is amazing. Yeah. Beautiful. But yeah, look, the other thing was the breastfeeding and I like, I, I want to preface this all by saying I still believe breast is best. And I, you know, if we choose to have a second baby, I'd go and try doing breastfeeding again. But I just assumed it would be all on touch and feel. And it's actually quite a visual process, you know, knowing where he is, knowing when he's opening his mouth, knowing if he's latched properly, knowing that his nose is not covered. So I'm not suffocating him. And then also with my dexterity issues, I felt like you just needed like eight hands to do everything, like hold his head, hold his arm underneath, hold my boob, shake the boob, like just all these things. And it was just, it was so tricky. And then, you know, supply became an issue. Look, he had a tongue tie as well. So, you know, it meant he couldn't latch. And so I was desperate 
desperately trying to pop him on every three hours, but he was just getting really tired. And by the time we could get the tongue tie sorted, it, it was a month. That was the earliest appointment I could get. And he'd gotten used to breast milk in a bottle. So didn't particularly want to work for it. I still tried for a month and a half after that. Mm. But in the end, he saw it as a, com- a place of comfort, not as a place of food source. Yeah. And I just had to go, you know what, is it my pride here or is it what Lockie actually needs? And the reality was, you know, I could supply his feeds for about seven weeks. And after that, I couldn't. The supply was just not, you know, a pump is not a pump is not a baby. So it ended up just having to be a really difficult decision. And you know what? He's the chubbiest thing ever and is thriving. And in the end, it doesn't matter. I had to make a decision that was best for us as a family and for me as a woman so I could be present and happy and actually get out of the house and not be a zombie all the time. And that worked for us. Wouldn't work for everyone. It doesn't matter how you feed them as long as they're fed. That's what's most important. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, I desperately wanted to. And as I say, if, if we go for number two, I, I will be desperately trying again because I, I think it is important. We still did the skin to skin every time we did a feed. and So, you know, he still wanted to be there. So I was obviously doing something right. Yeah, I feel everything you, that you're saying so deeply right now, Naz, because as I was saying before, I've got a five-week-old, so I'm literally going through all of that right now. And the breastfeeding, I can't imagine. Yeah, it is such a visual experience. I'm constantly looking how he's latched, you know, how he's drinking, yeah, like you are saying, if his nose is covered, all of that sort of thing. But so many people have challenges with it and good on you for giving it a good crack because it is hard. It doesn't always just come naturally. This actually, this second time around that I'm doing it, the first time I did find it really easy. And now this time it's been way more difficult and I was not expecting it. Probably because you've got way too much to think about. Yeah. Yeah. But just other things as well. You know, he's a different child. He drinks differently. We actually Mm. both were sick in the first couple of weeks after he was born. So my production was low. His nose was blocked. He wasn't drinking properly. I got mastitis, you know, all the things. Um, But it's just been such a different experience this time. It's so challenging. It's a different baby. And, you know, yeah. maybe the second one I have, it'll be totally Easy. fine. <laughs> no idea. And I think there's so much pressure that people feel that they have to do it. And yeah. if they don't, they're a failure. And I kept telling myself, look, if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. But it, when I was in the swing of it, I did feel like that. And I yeah. did feel like a complete and utter failure. And you know, kept telling myself, oh, look, I could stop. But no, no I've got to keep going. Because I, mm. I got 40 mils today and the next time I might get 50 and the next time I might get 60. Like you just, it becomes this competition with yourself. Really does your head in after a while. Yeah. And the reality was we weren't doing anything outside our four walls. Like every time Tom wanted to take Lockie to the park, I couldn't go because I had to pump. Or while I was pumping, Tom would feed him the bottle that I'd prepared, you know, the previous pump. And I just wanted to be part of that feeding process. Like I I just wasn't the mum that I wanted to be. So the decision was difficult, but it was definitely the right one for us. And I preface that because it just, it, that would not work for everyone. So everyone's got to do whatever suits them. Good on you. I'm a proud mix feeder yeah. at the moment. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, and there's nothing wrong with it. Yes, exactly. Nothing. And you know what? There are some benefits as well. You know how much they're eating. Yeah. And how do you know how much they're eating? Yeah. Out of a bottle. Yeah. So funny, there's no increments on the bottles, so I can't feel anything, but I've come to learn what 40 mils feels like, what 60 mils feels like. And I often will just, you know, if he's had a whole bottle, I know what it is because I'll know by the feel of the bottle, whether it's 180 or 120, because, you know, you can base it on the sizes. But 
when he's you know left a little bit i just judge it now because you know five and a half months in and you get to know these things you just do mm, like muscle mm, memory and mm. i often check with someone if they're coming like i'll keep the bottle to the side and just check with someone if i know they're coming over or when my husband gets home or whatever and to be honest i'm often right with how much he's left yeah. so it's just things that you learn you know as well like if they're hungry you just feed them it actually doesn't really matter at the end of the day how many meals they're having you know nope. if they're crying and they're no. still hungry give them more <laughs> can't overfeed a baby yeah i started out thinking oh it has to be five to six feeds a day or whatever now i just feed him when he wants to be fed and he's he's a happy chappy so as mums we do all worry about so many different things in regards to our children does it worry you that Lockie may be treated differently because he has a blind mum yeah i've thought about it mm. and I think I like to think that I'm doing enough work in terms mm. of the stories that I put out there and the advocacy I'm doing, for example, on my, my own Instagram page about motherhood and about the journey. And I hope that will be enough to make people not treat him differently. I've often wondered, like, will parents not allow their kids to come for play dates because, you know, they're worried about me not being able to supervise or you know, will they not talk to me at the school gate or whatever? And I worried about that even with like mother's group, for example, like would would the mums think I was, you know, they didn't know how to talk to me or whatever, but I have just found the total opposite and they're just so warm and friendly and treat me like they treat anybody else in the mother's group. And I have to say the last time we were at mother's group, there was a mum who, Lockie was asleep in the pram and I was at having lunch and then one mum wanted to go to the bathroom and I was like, oh, do you want me to hold your baby? I can hold them while you go. And she's like, actually, could you? That would be really nice. And so I did. And I sort of was really excited. I actually thought maybe they would say no because they didn't trust me. But I like to think that he's not going to be treated differently because yeah. I'm hoping there's enough awareness and acknowledgement out there about disability. And also that I guess like in my mother's group, they just see that I'm there and I'm exactly like them and just doing things a little bit differently, but still getting the job done in the best way possible mm. for Lockie and I. And I'm guessing I hope that all of that will be the same. I hope that kids do ask their parents like, oh, Lockie's mum has, you know, uses a cane. Why? Or like, yeah, why does she use something different? And they'll explain that stuff to their children so that it's not abnormal. And also mm. when he starts school and all those kinds of things, after talking to him about it, if he's okay with it, I would love to just go in and chat to the students and the teachers and, and all that kind of thing. That's mm. so nice to hear, Naz, and you are doing amazing work at educating people. And just before we started recording, we were mentioning to you how we have our podcast Auslan translated for more access to the deaf and hard of hearing community. And that was just something that when we first started this podcast, like, you know, as mums, when we were discussing like why we're doing this and what we're doing this for, you know, we talk a lot about how important it was just to make some contribution to being inclusive because we don't have deaf children or anything like that, but we want to create a space where everybody feels included and we feel more passionate about that since becoming parents. So, so right now in society like how do you feel about where we're at with disability and inclusion oh we're definitely nowhere near where we should be and you know one of the major things that I cover in my role as the National Disability Affairs reporter at the ABC is the Disability Royal Commission and all of the stories I'm hearing are things that are not surprising me sadly but you know the unemployment rate 
for people with disability, the lack of education options, the lack of support for people in group homes, the treatment that people receive in and Mm. out of the medical system, the abuse that people face, the exploitation people face, Mm. all of that is still so present in our society. This is not a thing of the past. It's a thing of now. And unless we do something, it'll be a thing of next week and the next month and probably next year. And so, no, we we have a long way to go. I, Mm. I am an eternal optimist and I do think we are making progress, but it's slow and it's only been because of really great advocacy from the community. I mean, there's a lot more people who you will see or hear about or read about now across the media. I mean, you know, most famous one, Dylan Alcott. I mean, people like Kurt Burnley, um, Carly Finlay. There's so many of them now who are out there on social media or whatever platform it is with their own individual story, but then also expanding beyond their story and going into other areas, you know, trying to boost employment and other aspects of of life for people with disability. And yeah, we've still got a very long way to go. And what I'd also say is it's pretty simple. If you own a business, run a podcast, you know, do whatever it is you do and you don't make it inclusive, you are missing out on almost 20% of the population or, you know, I'm bad at math, but I think it's 4.4 million. So if that's 20%. So, you know, that's a hell of a lot of people. And disability looks and comes in different forms. You can't just say that, you know, what works for me as a blind person won't work for the next blind person. We're all so different. And also what works for people with disability, if you make things inclusive and accessible, could work for mums that don't have disabilities or elderly people, which is a significantly bigger portion of the population. So you'll be losing all of that is what I'm saying if you don't focus on accessibility and inclusion. So Naz, as someone that works in the media with your role with the ABC covering disability affairs, what are your thoughts on how disability is represented or misinterpreted in the media these days? I think it's slowly getting better, but there's still a tendency to do stories that empower non-disabled people because of, you know, because we're supposed to be inspiration porn for, you know, the non-disabled community. Stella Young talked a lot about that. So there's still a huge tendency to do that. And also to not have people with lived experience in stories. I mean, that is so frequently done even now. Mm. So that's one of the biggest things that we've changed, particularly in my role is we don't do a story unless it's got a lived experience perspective. And if we don't have a lived experience perspective in it, there's got to be a damn good reason why. Yeah. What advice would you give to someone with a disability who's either hoping to start a family or about to head into this journey? Speaking about lived experience. Mm -hmm. Just do it and get very excited and draw on the best resource you have. And that is the disabled community, basically. You know, there are people who have done it already people who are doing it now, people who will do it in the future, and we are your greatest resource. So use us. Amazing. Naz, thank you so much for chatting with us today. We so appreciate it and it's been lovely. And yay, Lockie didn't wake up. We got through our chat. And so so if you didn't get a call for your baby either. Yeah, hopefully we've both still got, you know, 10 or 15 minutes up our sleeve to have some, have a cup of tea, Naz. (laughs) (laughs) That'd be nice. Thank you so much, both of you. Yeah, it was great to connect with you. Thanks for your time. Thanks, Naz. 
That's it for today. Make sure you head to incommonprojects.com.au for the show notes, hit subscribe on your podcast app and follow us on Instagram at Talking In Common or you can check out our Facebook page which is also Talking In Common. Have a lovely day and as always, thanks for listening.